The following recording is from the 2022 Seminars at Steamboat and was recorded live at Strings Pavilion. To learn more about Seminars at Steamboat or to view the video recording of this seminar, please visit seminarsatsteamboat.org. Thank you, Walt, and uh, thanks to all of you for joining us this evening here at the seminars. So cryptocurrencies, I feel like I'm possibly going out on a limb by saying that our topic tonight, crypto, is at an inflection point. And I'm pretty sure the phrase we're at an inflection point has been overused multiple times over the past decade. Well, I'm definitely sure it's been overused over multiple times over the past decade as crypto has grown to make the headlines more and more each day. You know, but as we sit here today, on the one hand, we have extremely successful people in places like Silicon Valley who say crypto will be an integral part of our future going forward. And on the other hand, we have equally extremely successful people who say there's absolutely nothing to this. And not to steal Lee's thunder, but I think you'll have some good examples of this and just to show just how polar opposite the views can be on our topic this evening. So perhaps we're at an inflection point, and if so, where are we? What does the future hold for all of us gathered here tonight? And if so, given the mission of the seminars, perhaps we can talk about what thoughtful policy we should put in place to ensure consumer protection and that we can safely transact in this um, safely and securely. To help answer these questions on where we are in the world of crypto and if this is the future of money or all hype, we're fortunate to have Lee Rainers with us this evening. Lee joins us from Duke Law, where he serves as the executive director of the, global, the Duke Global Financial Market Center. He teaches fintech law and policy. He researches new and emerging financial technologies and potential regulatory frameworks for them. You likely perhaps have already seen or read his work and thoughts as he's appeared regularly in publications like the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Fortune Magazine, and regular appearances on CNBC, and that's just to name a few. Prior to Duke, Lee worked as a supervisor and executive at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York for five years. I think if you take his time there at the Federal Reserve and then combine it with his current research at Duke, personally, I think we have one of, our, one of the industry's leading thinkers on our topic joining us here this evening. And so it gives me great pleasure to introduce Lee to address just what the future might hold for the world of crypto. So please join me in welcoming Lee up on stage. Well, thank you, Ken, for that kind introduction. And thank you for the hospitality that you have shown uh, me and my family. Uh, and also thanks to Katie uh, Kosick, um, who graciously volunteered her daughter to babysit for us. <laughs> and uh, I'm not sure her, her daughter had a, a choice in that. Um, but we, were, we will gladly take it. Um, you know, when I was first invited to come and speak here, uh, I instantly went to the seminars at Steamboat website to look at some of the past speakers, and I was just blown away by the caliber of folks that have come over the years to address you. So it really is an honor for me to be here, and I'd like to thank the board um, for inviting me. I also have to admit that I'm a bit jealous of all of you because not only do you, get, do you get to live in such a beautiful location, but every summer you get to hear from fantastic speakers for free. So, um, so that, is, that is excellent. One of the many perks I've discovered of living in Steamboat, this is my first time here. Uh, my wife and I uh, have decided to make it a family vacation. We've brought our nine-month-old and, and they're in the, the back there. Uh, so if you hear some crying later on, uh, you know who is to blame. Um, but of course, if he's uh, well-behaved the whole time, he gets that from me. <laughs> I should also note that my wife, uh, Dr. Kate Meyer, is an accomplished research scientist 
at Duke. So if you're ever interested in learning about uh, RNA methylation, uh, we would be more than happy to make a return trip <laughs> to Steamboat. And, uh, and, and this is the time of year where you do need to get out of uh, North Carolina. And, and uh, last night at dinner, someone remarked that it was humid yesterday in, uh, in Steamboat. And I, I, I scratched my head on that one. I said, come, come live with us for, uh, uh, in August. Um, so, you know, after Ken's introduction, you all know a fair deal about me, but I know next to nothing about you, other than that you're a very good-looking audience. Um, so I'd like to correct that uh, and start by asking a question. So how many of you have ever owned cryptocurrency? Raise your hand. Okay, a few. And how many of you would never, ever consider owning cryptocurrency? <laughs> Okay, I think, yeah, the, that's, the, that's the majority here. Um, well, I've been teaching and writing uh, and speaking about cryptocurrency ever since I came to Duke Law about six years ago. And, and I've been studying it you know, before that when I was at the New York Fed. And so I realized that six years may not sound like a long time, but I like to joke that cryptocurrency years are more like dog years. Uh, that's how quickly things evolve. And plus, it's, you know, half the time we've even had cryptocurrency. So, um, and so, you know, I want to start tonight um, by framing the conversation uh, with two quotes that highlight the divergent views around cryptocurrency. And the first quote comes from a famed internet entrepreneur and Silicon Valley venture capitalist, Mark Andreessen. And he wrote a New York Times op-ed in 2014 in which he said, quote, far from a mere libertarian fairy tale or a simple Silicon Valley exercise in hype, Bitcoin offers a sweeping vista of opportunity to reimagine how the financial system can and should work in the internet era and a catalyst to reshape that system in ways that are more powerful for individuals and businesses alike. And Mr. Andreessen and his VC firm, Andreessen Horowitz, has since gone on to invest uh, in a number of uh, crypto projects, not just Bitcoin, uh, Ethereum, uh, and a number of companies uh, as well. So they're probably the leading uh, crypto investor in Silicon Valley. So on the opposite end of the spectrum, we have a quote from Berkshire Hathaway's vice chairman and Warren Buffett's <laughs> longtime right-hand man, Charlie Munger. And Charlie was asked about cryptocurrency a few months ago, and he had this to say, quote, it's like some venereal disease or something. I just regard it as beneath contempt. Some people think it's modernity, and they welcome a currency that's so useful in extortions and kidnappings and tax evasion. I wish it had been banned immediately, and I admire the Chinese for banning it. <laughs> so clearly, two very, very different views, and I'd imagine some of you subscribe to one of these two views. Um, you know, one view is grounded in problems with current economic structures that the financial system and the internet have come to be dominated by a select few intermediaries or platforms who collect our data and extract economic rents from us, the consumers. And crypto supporters are fond of pointing out what are very real problems in the traditional financial sector. And they argue that cryptocurrency provides the solutions. The other view expressed by Mr. Munger is focused exclusively on the bad things that cryptocurrency is used for. 
And certainly, there are many bad things. Cryptocurrency has fueled the rise of ransomware attacks, facilitates money laundering, sanctions evasion, and other illicit activity. And of course, the view that you hold is going to influence how you think cryptocurrency should be regulated. Should we ban it, as Mr. Munger suggests? Or should we heavily regulate it? Or should we embrace it and adopt a light touch approach to regulation similar to what we did with the internet in the 1990s? Now, I'm cognizant of the fact that tonight's talk is, is phrased in the form of a question, so therefore I feel an obligation to give you an answer, uh, and I do intend to do so at the end. But if we're going to understand whether or not cryptocurrency is the future of money, we need to know something about money's past. Specifically, we need to ask ourselves, what is money? A question that few of us have probably spent much time thinking about before. So economists say that money performs three functions. First, it's a medium of exchange, meaning we can use it to buy and sell goods and services. Second, it's a store of value, meaning that you feel comfortable holding your wealth in a given monetary unit, and that that wealth will maintain over the medium to long term. And then finally, money is a unit of account, meaning that you can use it to measure the relative value of goods and services. We can compare prices in money. Now, over time, many different monetary instruments have fulfilled these three functions. So economists say that money simply arose to solve the problems with barter, or what's known as the double coincidence of wants, meaning that for an economic transaction to occur, I have to have something that you want, and you have to have something that I want. Clearly, this is an inefficient system by which to run an economy. The problem with it is that there are actually very few examples of barter-based economies. This is something that anthropologists and archaeologists have looked into. So imagine it is ancient times, and I'm a blacksmith in need of a pig for a feast. I could go to the local butcher and try to exchange a sword or some iron pots for a pig, but it's a small village and the butcher knows me. So rather than exchange a sword for a pig, I could issue an IOU to the butcher who's then entitled to claim that IOU at a future date. And because everyone else in the village knows me and knows that I honor my debts, that butcher can then use the IOU I gave him to pay for something else. So the IOU functions as money. And this is actually referred to as the credit theory of money. And it predates coinage by thousands of years. But as communities became larger and people became more mobile, you can see how this IOU form of money breaks down because not everyone knows and can trust the IOU issuer to make good on their debts. So what you need is an IOU issuer that everybody knows and has reason to do business with. Enter the state or the government. Because all citizens must pay taxes and thus share a common creditor, government-issued tokens can freely circulate as currency within the community, within the boundaries of that state. And government money has evolved over time. It began with commodity money, where the money itself was made out of something that was already recognized as valuable. Precious metals like gold and silver being the classic example, and they had the added benefit of being durable and scarce. But it was inefficient to carry bags of metal coins with you everywhere. 
And over time, people began to snip some of the metal content off of the coins, thereby leading to inflation. So commodity money gave way, a very different form of inflation than what we have today, right? <laughs> so commodity money gave way to representative money, where the money itself was not valuable, but it represented a claim on something that was valuable. The gold standard being the classic example. And the US didn't officially leave the gold standard until 1971 under President Nixon, a decision which many would argue uh, today uh, was a mistake. Now I happen to disagree. So this gave way then to our current era of fiat money, where money is valuable simply because the government says that it is. Fiat being Latin for let it be done. So each of these changes was momentous in their own right and occurred gradually over time. And as preposterous as it may sound tonight to suggest that one day we'll all be transacting in Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency, it would have sounded just as ludicrous to suggest to someone in the early 20th century that one day we would ditch the gold standard. So I say that to encourage you all to keep an open mind. It's certainly something that I try to do as I study and teach uh, about cryptocurrency. So enough with the history lesson. You guys came to learn about cryptocurrency. So let's talk about the very first cryptocurrency and still the most popular, which is Bitcoin. Bitcoin was introduced to the world on Halloween 2008 in a nine-page white paper posted to an online cryptographic message board by someone using the pen name Satoshi Nakamoto. Now, we still do not know who Satoshi is. Many speculate that it's multiple people. And the first Bitcoin transaction occurred in January of 2009. And that first transaction included a reference to a UK newspaper article with the headline, Chancellor on Brink of Second Bailout for Banks. Now this tells you something about the environment in which Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies came into being. This was in the midst of the global financial crisis, when trust in banks and government institutions were at all-time lows. And so it was really libertarians and anti-government types that were the first to be drawn to cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and sustained it for its first couple of years. And that libertarian ethos still prevails within the broader crypto economy. It's one of the reasons why um, the crypto sector is so resistant to any meaningful forms of regulation. And so the Bitcoin white paper begins with the following two lines. Quote, commerce on the internet has come to rely almost exclusively on financial institutions serving as trusted third parties to process electronic payments. Well, the system works well enough for most transactions, it still suffers from the inherent weaknesses of the trust-based model. So you can see that Satoshi understood the central role, the critical role that trust plays in sustaining all currencies, which is why the words trust or trusted appear 13 times in the nine-page white paper. But Satoshi argues that trust is not costless. Trusted intermediaries charge fees to perform that role. And not only that, they have no choice but to mediate disputes. And that means that transactions could be reversed. And that itself is a form of cost. So Satoshi believed that Bitcoin's success was premised on the absence of trust. In essence, we replaced trust, trust with math or cryptography. But do you really think people buy Bitcoin for $20,000 or $60,000 as it's traded in the past without trusting in anything? No, 
Rather than trust a person in real or legal form, Bitcoin's revelation was its underlying blockchain technology that allows network participants to trust the information recorded on a shared ledger without having to trust anyone to validate it. So the end result is that for the first time ever, we now have a system that exists that allows users to confidently transmit value from one person to another without having to trust any other users of the system or any kind of central administrator. So by combining the internet, software, cryptography, and clever incentive mechanisms, Bitcoin solves the geographic limitations that hindered previous forms of private money. Now note that I said value, not money. The Bitcoin blockchain records the entire transaction history of Bitcoin transactions. But we can think of blockchain as a decentralized append-only data structure. And that data can represent anything. It can be property titles, it can be traditional securities, or it can be supply chain information. And there are some blockchains, like the Ethereum blockchain, that allow for the storage and execution of smart contracts, which are simply self-executing computer code. And this opens up a whole new range of possibilities, including decentralized financial applications like cryptocurrency lending and trading protocols that operate entirely without any intermediaries. So this is a public policy uh, lecture series, so I'm going to spare you the technical details of blockchain. But I should note that blockchains are worse than a traditional database across almost every dimension. They're slower, they're more energy intensive, they have worse user experiences, they're difficult to govern. But these are all structural trade-offs that result directly from the primary design goal of blockchain, which is decentralization. And decentralization means censorship resistance because there's no one entity that controls the ledger and the transactions that go on that ledger. And now we can start to imagine where cryptocurrency might be valuable to some people. If you live in an authoritarian country or a country with hyperinflation, crypto may have some use to you. And of course, decentralization and the pseudonymity that crypto provides make cryptocurrency appealing to bad actors. And it was illicit activity that was cryptocurrency's initial use case. The, big, the biggest example being the Silk Road Darknet Marketplace, which was a place where users could go to buy and sell all sorts of illegal goods and services, including drugs, guns, and even hit jobs. Bitcoin uh, was the exclusive payment mechanism on Silk Road until it was shut down in 2013. So it was really illicit activity and the enthusiasm of techno-libertarians that sustained Bitcoin for its first couple of years. And then 2017 happened. And so I imagine for some of you, 2017, or for most of you, was the first time you had heard of Bitcoin or cryptocurrency or bothered paying attention. And you can see why in this chart, which plots um, Bitcoin's price in the blue line on the left-hand scale, uh, and then we have the S&P 500 in the green line on the right-hand scale. These were the good old days when the stock market went up. And uh, you can see that, you know, 2017, Bitcoin started the year around $1,000, uh, gradually started going up, and then uh, the fall and winter hit an exponential growth in Bitcoin's price. So there was a couple things going on at this time. 
uh, you started to see the emergence of online user-friendly exchanges where people could go to buy and sell cryptocurrency and store cryptocurrency. And the user interfaces on these exchanges look no different than your retail stock brokerage account at Schwab or, or E-Trade, very easy to use. You also start to see Bitcoin ATMs um, come on the scene. Again, another easy way to acquire Bitcoin. People also became more familiar with the technology through YouTube videos and other online tutorials. And eventually, network effects kicked in. And that's simply an economic concept, which means that a good or a service becomes more valuable the more people use it. You also saw initial coin offerings take off during this time. The name, of course, is a play on initial public offerings. These are ways for companies and organizations to raise uh, money on the blockchain. Uh, all of them were essentially illegal securities offerings, but at the time, they didn't think that they were. Uh, and the SEC has since cracked down. And so as prices started going up, FOMO kicked in, right? Fear of missing out. It was during this time you started to read uh, articles with headlines like, student drops out of college, travels the world on Bitcoin profits. Uh, and of course, that feeds on itself. It brings in new investors. And eventually, speculative mania took over. And this line, this blue line, is what a financial bubble looks like. I could strip out all the labels, all the numbers, and just show you that blue line, and it would look very similar to mortgage assets leading up to 2008, the dot-com bubble leading up to the early 2000s, or even all the way back to the Dutch tulip bulb craze of the 1600s. Now, of course, with Bitcoin's case, it happened on a much shorter timescale. So every bubble is fueled by a narrative. Again, going back to 2008, that narrative was that housing prices can never go down on a nationwide basis, despite the fact that they had during the Great Depression. People just conveniently forgot. So the narrative that started to emerge around this time when it came to Bitcoin was that it's a form of digital gold because there will only be 21 million Bitcoins ever put into circulation by the terms of its code. This means that there's a fixed supply, just like there's a fixed supply of actual gold. And like actual gold, that fixed supply means that it's a hedge against inflation and it's a hedge against the broader stock market. But even if you bought into that digital gold thesis, how do you translate that into a specific price for Bitcoin? And this gets to one of the ongoing challenges for Bitcoin and all cryptocurrencies, which is what is the valuation methodology you apply? Why is one Bitcoin worth $20,000 and not $80,000? Or conversely, not $5? Well, if you look at how traditional securities are valued, they generate cash flows, right? Stocks pay dividends, bonds pay coupons. You discount that future stream of cash flows to the present time. Well, of course, in cryptocurrency's case, there is no cash flows to discount. You look at how traditional currencies are valued. They're valued relative to one another. We have the yen dollar exchange rate, and that exchange rate is gonna be based off of a number of things, like the GDP growth in the two countries, inflation in the two countries, Interest rates, again, things that don't apply to cryptocurrency. So you're left with an asset with no fundamentals that trades entirely on sentiment. And this is why social media and memes and things that Elon Musk says are so critical to sustaining interest and valuation in the crypto economy. And as we can see in this chart here, 
That sentiment turned negative in December 2017 after crypto peaked at around $20,000, ushering in what became known as crypto winter. And as you can see in this chart, crypto winter lasted for several years. Again, we have the blue line showing the price of Bitcoin from 2017 to today, uh, and then the red line showing uh, the consumer price index, which uh, is a measure uh, of inflation. And so Bitcoin's price remained below its December 2017 peak until the pandemic happened. So what's the deal with the pandemic? Well, as you know, Congress passed multiple rounds of stimulus. Many Americans uh, received direct checks from the government. Uh, folks were at home, they were bored, they were on social media, and they started buying cryptocurrency with their stimulus. And it wasn't just cryptocurrency that they were buying, they also bought the meme stocks, right? The GameStops and the AMCs, if you remember from January 2021. In addition, some investors still clung to the digital gold thesis and were concerned about the Federal Reserve's policy response to the pandemic, where once again they pushed interest rates to zero and flooded the financial system with trillions of dollars in liquidity, and that was interpreted as a sign of pending inflation and therefore a signal to buy Bitcoin. But we now know that this digital gold thesis has been shattered in recent months. You don't need me to tell you that inflation is at its highest level in 40 years, and during that time, Bitcoin and crypto prices have plummeted. After peaking at $69,000 last November, Bitcoin has proceeded to decline by over 70%. Over that same time period, the market capitalization of all cryptocurrencies went from $3 trillion to $1 trillion, a staggering loss of wealth in a very short period of time. So it is now clear that cryptocurrency trades like a risk asset, like an unprofitable tech company. And in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, central banks around the world push interest rates to zero. And this led to a search for yield, whereby investors were buying riskier and riskier assets in hopes of generating higher and higher returns, cryptocurrency included. So crypto has only existed in an unprecedented decade plus of near zero interest rates. And now that rates are going up, crypto's future is very much in doubt. And for crypto to have any value long term, it has to provide genuine economic utility. It can't simply be a means for speculation. And this is something that I've said repeatedly on CNBC, uh, and it's like I'm shouting into the void. No one wants to listen. Um, you know, so Warren Buffett uh, once famously said that when the tide goes out, you see who is swimming naked. <laughs> well, the tide has gone out in cryptocurrency. And we've seen a number of high-profile crypto failures in the past months and in the past weeks. So the timing of tonight's talk is impeccable. So things really started in May when the stablecoin Terra USD collapsed. Now, stablecoins are cryptocurrencies that are typically pegged one for one with the US dollar. And while the most popular stablecoins maintain that peg by holding fiat-denominated assets in reserve, like treasury securities, Terra maintained the peg through a complicated algorithm that bought and sold Terra with a sister cryptocurrency called Luna. And at their height, 
Luna and Terra had a combined market value of $60 billion. Now they're both essentially worthless. One of the largest investors in Terra and Luna was a crypto hedge fund called Three Arrows Capital that ended up failing. At the time of their failure, they had roughly $10 billion in assets under management. Not only that, but Three Arrows Capital was one of the largest borrowers in the crypto economy. And so problems at Three Arrow Capital spilled over into the crypto brokerage firm Voyager Digital, who in June suspended customer withdrawals, and then they filed for bankruptcy earlier this month. As it turns out, Voyager had been falsely marketing that their customers' cash balances were FDIC-insured when they were not. As we know, FDIC insurance only applies to banks. And then more recently, we've seen the failure of uh, crypto lender Celsius, who again in June suspended customer withdrawals and then just a few weeks ago filed for bankruptcy. As I stand here tonight, Celsius owes its users over $4.7 billion. So I'm sure there are more dominoes to fall. But we have learned a few things, or I should say relearned a few things. We've learned that the crypto industry is not immune to the same risk that have been long present in the traditional financial sector. And this is something that I've also been saying for quite a long time. These risks include runs, fire sales, deleveraging, interconnectedness, and contagion. But unlike the traditional financial system, there is no central bank that's going to step in to stop this hemorrhaging by fulfilling that quintessential central bank role of lender of last resort. The Fed is not going to be bailing out the crypto economy, and we should be thankful for that. Um, so we have some bad news and we have some good news. The bad news is that consumers have lost a lot of money. And I hear from many of these people. It comes with the territory when you're a law professor who uh, writes about cryptocurrency. Uh, folks are just desperate for anyone uh, to help them, and their stories are heartbreaking. Unfortunately, there's, there's little I can do. You know, none of the normal consumer protections that exist in the traditional financial sector are present in the crypto system. It is important to remember that those who are invested in cryptocurrency are disproportionately young, diverse, and underbanked. In a recent survey, over 20% of respondents said that they had borrowed money to buy cryptocurrency, including, in some cases, from payday lenders. The good news, the good news, is that crypto's problems haven't spilled over into the traditional financial system and threatened financial stability. We haven't had a Bear Stearns or Lehman Brothers moment for those of you who remember the events of 2008. Now, this does not mean that crypto will not be systemically risky in the future. It was well on its way to threatening financial stability if it continued its growth trajectory and as it became increasingly integrated with the traditional financial sector through things like crypto derivatives, which we do have. So, how should policymakers respond? Just as I started tonight's conversation with two quotes that framed the divergent views around cryptocurrency, we have two divergent policy responses, China and El Salvador. In 2021, China completely banned 
cryptocurrency. And this has sort of been in the works for a while. They started by banning crypto exchanges, then crypto miners, and then eventually they said it's all illegal. Uh, and they were worried about national security and social stability. But of course, as you might imagine from listening to last week's speaker, uh, an anonymous private currency outside the government's control is not going to be particularly appealing to the Chinese Communist Party. <laughs> On the other end of the spectrum, you have, you have El Salvador, who last summer made Bitcoin legal tender alongside the US dollar, which had been legal tender in the country since uh, 2000. And I can tell you that that experiment in El Salvador is not going well. So what about the US? What have we done? Well, policymakers in the US have adopted the unintentional strategy of doing absolutely nothing. <laughs> US regulators in Congress have been slow to respond to the emergence of cryptocurrency. In fact, it wasn't until Facebook attempted to launch their own cryptocurrency, a stablecoin called Libra, in 2019, that policymakers stood up and took notice. Now, this delay does have its pros and its cons. On the pro side, it gives policymakers time to understand this new technology and how it is being used, while avoiding heavy-handed regulation that could potentially stifle useful innovation. On the con side, consumers and investors can, and as we've seen, have been taken advantage of. In addition, a lack of regulatory clarity can hinder innovation and hamstring entrepreneurs. So further hindering any type of coordinated response in the US is our fragmented financial regulatory system. Nobody would design this system we have from scratch. Okay? It's the byproduct of historical accident and political accident. The classic example is the fact that the US is one of the few countries in the world with a separate derivatives regulator and a securities regulator. Derivatives are regulated by the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, the CFTC, and securities, of course, are regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC. Now, there have been numerous attempts over the years to try to merge those two, but politics has gotten in the way. Uh, the CFTC is overseen by the House and Senate Ag Committees, whereas the SEC is overseen by the Senate and House Banking and Finance Committees. Uh, neither one of those committees is eager to give up their oversight role, especially when you consider how lucrative they can be for campaign contributions. We are talking about finance, after all. Um, so you have multiple regulatory agencies all laying claim to some aspect of cryptocurrency depending upon each agency's narrow statutory mandate. And then on top of that, you have the states who are all doing their own thing when it comes to cryptocurrency. Wyoming, for example, has completely embraced cryptocurrency. In fact, they've said that they want to be the Delaware of cryptocurrency. Of course, Delaware is home to um, corporate law. Even here in Colorado, you will soon be able to pay your taxes in cryptocurrency. So congratulations, I guess. Um, in addition, Governor Paulus has hired a chief blockchain architect, and I'm not quite sure what that job uh, entails. So how is cryptocurrency regulated in the US? Well, I teach a one-semester class at Duke Law on this, so you're going to get the one-slide version of that, <laughs> of that class. The semester in a slide, as I'll say. Um, so starting off, cryptocurrency is regulated as money by the Treasury Department for purposes of enforcing laws around money laundering and terrorist financing. But in addition, money transmission is licensed at the state level in the US. 
And by now, most states have said that cryptocurrency is money for purposes of their money transmission licensing regime. Then you have the IRS, who says that cryptocurrency is property. This means that you have to pay capital gains taxes every time you use cryptocurrency. So if you were to buy a cup of coffee with Bitcoin, you would have to pay capital gains taxes on the amount that Bitcoin went up by, assuming it went up, from the time you acquired it to the time you bought coffee with it. Then you have the CFTC and the SEC battling it out over whether or not cryptocurrency is a commodity or security. In 2015, the CFTC classified Bitcoin as a commodity. And the CFTC has jurisdiction over futures and other derivatives involving commodities. But commodity cash markets or spot markets are not regulated at the federal level. So what that means in practice is that cryptocurrency exchanges in the US are not regulated at the federal level because technically all they're trading, or at least all they claim that they're trading or offering for trading are commodities. And this is a big gap that needs to change and needs to be addressed. And even the crypto uh, industry recognizes that it needs to change. Because no one would suggest, of course, it's a good idea for the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ to be unregulated. Yet that's exactly the situation we have right now with cryptocurrency exchanges. Then there are some cryptocurrencies that are more centralized than Bitcoin and therefore more likely to be securities subject to the SEC's jurisdiction. And the SEC has aggressively gone after unregistered crypto securities offerings. And they have thus far failed to permit the listing of an ETF, an exchange-traded fund, that would track Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency. Now, the SEC's actions stand in stark contrast to the CFTC. In December of 2017, so remember during the peak of that initial Bitcoin bull market, the CFTC permitted the listing of Bitcoin futures contracts. And they have since permitted a number of other cryptocurrency derivatives to list. And this initial 2017 action earned the then CFTC chairman, Chris Giancarlo, the nickname Crypto Dad from the crypto industry. And it's a nickname that he has embraced as evidenced by the title of his new book, which is Crypto Dad. So you can see why the CFTC is the preferred regulator for the crypto industry. So clearly this is an issue that is calling out for presidential and congressional leadership. And finally, we are starting to get it. Last March, President Biden signed an executive order on ensuring responsible innovation of digital assets. And I can tell you that leading up to this executive order, the narrative that was out there was that the administration was set to crack down on cryptocurrency. Well, this executive order was not a crackdown. In fact, it was the exact opposite. Uh, it was a recognition by the administration that cryptocurrency is here to stay. It's not going away. Therefore, it should be the policy of the US government to harness cryptocurrency's benefits while controlling and mitigating its risk. And to do this, it offers six primary policy objectives, including protecting consumers, investors, and businesses, protecting financial stability, mitigating illicit finance and national security risk, and finally, reinforcing United States leadership in the global financial system and in technological and economic competitiveness. And this last point reflects real concern amongst some policymakers that crypto could be the future of money and finance, and the US is at risk of being left behind. 
And no one wants to be accused of being a Luddite or failing to recognize uh, innovation or stifling the next great technological wave. You know, so the EO calls on, the executive order, sorry, calls on multiple federal departments and agencies to all study cryptocurrency and issue a series of reports and analysis on key issues. And we're in a bit of a holding pattern right now as we're waiting for these reports to come out. And once we start to see them, we'll have a better sense of where the future path of cryptocurrency regulation is heading. You know, but there's only so much the administration can do. Uh, and the regulatory agencies have already sort of pushed their legal authority to the max, in my opinion. So meaningful change can only come from Congress. We need to pass new laws. And again, here we are starting to see a bit of progress. Last month, Senators Kristen Gillibrand, a Democrat from New York, and Cynthia Lummis, a Republican from Wyoming, introduced a bill to create a comprehensive regulatory framework for cryptocurrency. Notably, the bill would give the CFTC authority over cryptocurrency spot markets. But as you all know, we have a dysfunctional Congress, and cryptocurrency is not a really high priority, uh, especially heading into an election season. And furthermore, the crypto sector has mobilized and accumulated political capital that they're not afraid to spend, and they have spent it when it suits their purposes. So I'm not too optimistic about any bills passing soon. Furthermore, like everything else in our country right now, cryptocurrency has become a partisan issue. While the Democrats are divided on the potential for cryptocurrency and how to regulate it, the Republicans, by and large, have embraced cryptocurrency, as evidenced in the Twitter bio of Josh Mandel, who recently lost to J.D. Vance in the Ohio U.S. Senate primary, and in his Twitter bio it said that he is pro-God, pro-gun, pro-Bitcoin. <laughs> so you can see, again, how this has become politicized. And of course, any politicized issue makes compromise and working across the aisle very, very challenging. So the status quo is probably going to prevail in the U.S., and this frustrates both cryptocurrency skeptics and cryptocurrency supporters, who both want the same thing, after all, which is regulatory clarity. Now, of course, the form that clarity takes is up for debate. So, returning to the issue at hand. Is cryptocurrency the future of money? Well, first, as a medium of exchange, it fails. Cryptocurrency is far too volatile to be used in day-to-day -day transactions. Just think about it. If you were a merchant, why would you accept payment in something that can go down by 10% or more within 24 hours? Or because Elon Musk tweets something. As a store of value, it also fails. As we've seen, cryptocurrency has declined by over 70% in a matter of months. Clearly not a very good store of value. And then finally, as a unit of account, it also fails. Even within the crypto economy, prices are still quoted in dollars. So I'm here to tell you that, in my opinion, cryptocurrency is not the future of money. But this does not mean that the underlying blockchain technology that powers cryptocurrency doesn't have use cases beyond digital money. And as Americans, 
we should be glad that crypto is not the future of money. Because the dollar's status as international reserve currency affords all of us tremendous benefits, what Charles de Gaulle's finance minister called America's exorbitant privilege. The dollar is the most widely used currency for global trade and finance. This provides us a safe currency that is relatively immune to exchange rate risk. It also suppresses interest rates and allows the U.S. to finance large current account deficits. And not only that, but the dollar status allows U.S. policymakers to leverage the dollar and our financial system as an instrument of foreign policy. Now, our adversaries would say that we've weaponized the dollar. And you can see this most clearly in our response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, where we've imposed unprecedented financial sanctions on Russia, including restricting the Russian central bank's access to dollar reserves they hold at the Federal Reserve. So let's not willingly give up these benefits by embracing cryptocurrency of questionable value. Now, this does not mean that the U.S. can rest on its laurels. In fact, policymakers are actively thinking about how to upgrade the dollar for the digital age and ensure it remains the world's reserve currency well into the future. So one of the more interesting things in the executive order was a call for the Treasury Secretary to work with the heads of other agencies, including the Attorney General and the Director of National Intelligence, to explore the potential for a U.S. central bank digital currency, or a CBDC. Now, a CBDC is simply a digital liability of the central bank that everyone has access to. Now, you might be asking yourself, isn't money already digital? And you'd be right, it is. But there are two types of money in the U.S. We have central bank money and commercial bank money. The only central bank money you and I have access to are the paper bills in our wallet. Those are liabilities of the Federal Reserve. But the rest of our money is stored at commercial banks. We deposit it at the bank. And those deposits are a liability of the bank. Now, commercial banks have access to digital central bank money in the form of reserves, and they use these reserves to settle payments with one another. So we can imagine the benefits of giving all Americans access to a digital liability of the Federal Reserve, which, after all, is a risk-free form of money. Presumably, the Federal Reserve is not going away anytime soon. And that includes financial inclusion. Many Americans and lower-income Americans and immigrants have a hard time establishing and maintaining an access to a banking account. So central bank digital currency could help them. It could also speed up and make more efficient fiscal transfers. Why do people have to wait multiple days for their unemployment benefits to hit their bank account or for their stimulus payments to hit their bank account? Why can't we all have a digital wallet on our phone that the government instantly pushes a digital dollar to? In addition, a central bank digital currency could add some redundancy to our payment system and make it more diverse, so we're less reliant on systems like MasterCard or Visa Network if they were to go down. And then finally, many policymakers view a digital dollar or a CBDC as critical uh, in keeping up with China, because China is actively rolling out their own central bank digital currency, a digital yuan, and many are fearful that this is an effort by China to replace the dollar status in international commerce. Now, on this last point, 
I certainly agree that we need to compete with China across you know, many dimensions, but I'm less worried about the yuan uh, replacing the dollar, because the dollar status is supported by the fact that the U.S. has deep and liquid financial markets, the rule of law, an independent central bank, and a commitment to a free-floating currency. And these are things that China is not going to be able to replicate anytime soon. So the Federal Reserve is actively studying a central bank digital currency, but Fed Chair Jerome Powell has said that he will not act without congressional authorization. And that is as it should be, because the dollar is our money after all, and its future form should be subject to open debate by our elected representatives. So I thank you for spending your Monday evening with me, and I'd be happy to take any questions you have. So we have questions coming in from the audience, and I would say two of the top three, likely based on where we live and being close to the outdoors, is you see the headlines, crypto and mining crypto uses an enormous amount of electric power, and maybe it's not environmentally friendly. And we've heard that before, but now more recently we're hearing about concerns about just overtaxing the grid, and you have a future of electrification for cars, not just crypto. And is the grid going to go down by this excessive use? So just is that another blow potentially, and how does that get solved if you were in the crypto industry? Yeah, I mean, you know, crypto is frankly an environmental disaster. Um, and you know, it's become more of an issue here in the U.S. ever since China banned mining, and a lot of that mining, which had previously going on, been going on in China, migrated here to the U.S. And I, in fact, I hear from, all, you know, I hear from people who lose money, and then I hear from folks in, uh, you know, primarily rural communities who have had their lives upended by a crypto mine opening next door, and it sounds like they're living next to LAX all of a sudden. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, so, so what, do we, what do we do here? You know, the, I didn't get into the details of, because it's easy to get bogged down into kind of how mining works. And so remember with, with blockchain, you know, there's a digital ledger, and the point is that everyone has the exact same copy of the ledger. So how do you get to that consensus? And that's what the role of miners is, is that um, they expend a tremendous, tremendous amount of energy in the form of electricity to solve a complex mathematical problem. And if they're successful, uh, they're rewarded with a certain amount of, of Bitcoin. But you need that cost in order to incentivize honest mining. Otherwise, anyone could sort of take over the, the network for their purposes. So, you know, the energy usage is by design, um, and it can't go away. Uh, now, there are other consensus mechanisms that are less uh, environmentally uh, damaging. Uh, and there are some efforts, in fact, Ethereum, the second most popular cryptocurrency, is, is attempting to transition away from what's known as proof of work, which is what Bitcoin uses to achieve consensus, to, to proof of stake. But it's, it's very much uncertain if they'll, if they'll get there. Um, so, you know, you're starting to see policymakers push back. In fact, in New York, um, the uh, state legislature there passed a bill that would ban the use of fossil fuels for mining cryptocurrency, and it's awaiting Governor Hochul's Signature. You've seen other communities pass zoning ordinances uh, that would effectively kick out miners. Uh, in Europe, there was an early draft of a bill around cryptocurrency regulation that would have completely banned proof-of-work um, cryptocurrencies. So policymakers are starting to understand that this is an environmental um, disaster, but they haven't coalesced around any 
uh, easy solutions, and it is destabilizing to the grid. In fact, in Texas, ERCOT just put out a warning um, asking everyone to decrease their energy usage, uh, including cryptocurrency uh, miners, and that's you know voluntary, so I don't know why they would do that, but um, it's, a big, it's a big issue, and I sympathize with folks who have to live next to these mining facilities, because you know, no one works in these places. They're just massive server farms, um, and they really can't get any answers. And then continuing on with the audience questions, there's, and you see this more with, I don't want to say more sophisticated, we'll just call more institutional investors from hedge funds on down, yeah. talking about investing in crypto, but um, what proportion in your mind or have you seen studies of, of the investment in crypto is based on informed bets and how much is just pure speculation? And is there a way to kind of siphon out between the two? <laughs> Well, I mean, I think I made my position pretty clear. Uh, you know, it's, it's really all speculation. I mean, you can try to kind of read sentiment, and there certainly are, you know, hedge funds that do that, right? That, um, you know, use machine learning to read Reddit, to read Twitter, to, you know, all these forums where um, folks trading cryptocurrency live to try to gauge where, where things are heading. Um, you know, but it's frustrating because, you know, you've seen a lot of prominent... Uh, Silicon Valley VC firms essentially engage in securities fraud as an investment strategy, and they know better. Um, and now they're trying to change the rules um, after the fact. And you know, some of the same firms that profited off of uh, you know the internet that we currently have, right? You know, the you know the profit off of investments in Google and Facebook are now telling us that that world is evil and that this whole Web3 world, whatever that means, which is powered by cryptocurrency, is the future. And they just happen to be heavily invested in it. So, um, you know, I, I'm, very, I'm really, you know, pessimistic and frankly, you know, upset by a lot of um, sophisticated investors who know better and are peddling um, what are worthless investments on, on folks. And, you know, last point on that, Ken, is, you know, folks might have seen that a few months ago, Fidelity, which is the largest 401k plan uh, provider, in the country, announced that they were going to allow um, folks that had a Fidelity uh, retirement account to put up to 20% uh, in Bitcoin, which is just completely irresponsible to me. I mean, I don't know about you, but I invest for my retirement because I expect the assets to go up in value over the long term. I don't know, again, what thesis you, know, you would use to suggest that that's going to apply with, with Bitcoin. Now, thankfully, in that case, the Department of Labor, which you know, we generally don't think of as a financial regulator, they actually do oversee these employer-sponsored plans. And they've said that it's, in essence, a per se fiduciary duty violation for employers to offer um, you know, their employees the chance to invest in, in Bitcoin. So that's going to be you know, kind of battled out in, in the courts. But um, you know, a lot of people are out to make a, a quick buck, unfortunately, after the backs of, off the backs of folks who just can't afford to, to lose money. Okay, so speculation, buyer beware, it's, yes. it's a dangerous market. And if we switch to possibly a future of it, the, more of the exchange of value, the digital dollar, central bank backed, um, just in your mind, timing of when that might be available to us, when we might be able to use it to buy and sell things at retailers. Um, yeah, let's start with that. Years. Um, you know, Secretary Yellen actually just gave a speech on this, and she said, you know, we're just, we're at the drawing board. Um, at this point when it comes to a central bank digital currency. And so it's going to take, I mean, there's a, you know, I kind of didn't spend a ton of time on it, but there are a lot of very difficult, not just technical decisions, but policy decisions 
that need to be made before you roll out something like a central bank digital currency. The main one being, what would be the role for commercial banks? If we all have access to risk-free money in the form of a digital dollar, why would we ever put our money uh, in the bank? And of course, we need banks to make loans and, and generate economic activity. Uh, and in fact, you know, banks are how monetary policy gets, gets implemented in this country. So there are a lot of very, very tricky policy decisions that need to get ironed out. And that's why you know, I, I agree with Chair Powell when it says this should be subject to open and transparent debate. I mean, we should all have a, a say in this um, because it's not, you know, it's not that simple to just push out a, a digital dollar. Okay, and then if we continue on kind of thinking about possibly what the future might look like, so years and years for a digital dollar. Um, but then if we go back to the founding of the world of crypto, it was anti-centralized institutions that wanted to avoid having the risk of mm -hmm. some of the problems you, you just mentioned. I mean, is it in the like five, 10 years from now, we have a digital dollar, but we still have this whole separate universe of multiple coins, Bitcoin being the most popular. Yeah, I mean, that's another, yeah. Two competing markets. That's a good point. I mean, and so kind of if we do have this digital dollar, why would we ever need you know, crypto? Like what role would, would crypto um, provide? I mean, again, the problems, you know, there are problems with our financial system, particularly our payment system in the US, which is it's slow and antiquated. And I imagine many of you have traveled abroad. Um, for instance, if you're China, uh, Alipay and WeChat Pay dominate the payments landscape there. It's all QR code based, instantaneous settlement, real-time settlement. Um, similar in Europe, they have uh, real-time payments. We don't have anywhere near real-time payments. You know, we, we all know that if you know, an ACH doesn't show up in your bank account until a couple days. Um, and for most of us, it's not a big deal. But if you're a lower income American who lives close to zero balance, that's a big deal. If you have bills to pay and your paycheck is not hitting your account before you have to send those bills, then you're gonna get hit with overdraft fees and all these other things. So it's expensive to be poor in this country is the reality. And of course, they don't have access, lower income folks don't have access to these generous credit cards uh, that we all have access to. So, um, you know, so there is efforts afoot to try to address this. The Fed is rolling out a real-time growth settlement system that's gonna launch next year. If it's successful, I hope it is, I think that will kind of slow some of the momentum behind cryptocurrencies. You know, stable coins are a useful innovation and there's potential for stable coins to be used for payments. I don't view stable coins as that disruptive because at the end of the day, they're pegged to the dollar, so it's still dollarization. Um, it's just, you know, interesting um, technology. So, you know, if crypto can solve some of these real problems that we have, then I'm, then I'm open to it, but thus far, I just haven't seen it. A follow-up would be um, central, central bank digital dollar. Um, does that run on the blockchain? Does it require the yeah, blockchain? Yeah, that's another, yeah, I mean, so that doesn't technically have to. I mean, it can be account-based, similar to um, how commercial bank money runs now, right? So my money at, you know, Bank of America exists as a ledger entry on Bank of America's proprietary database, right? Um, the same could be true for the digital dollar. The Federal Reserve can maintain databases. And we could all maybe just go to federalreserve.com, just like we go to, you know, jpmorgan.com or whatever. Um, and access the central bank digital currency there. So it doesn't have to be uh, blockchain-based, uh, but you know, many want it to be uh, blockchain-based. Got it, and then switching gears, I'll just read it as, as a quote. Is there, in your opinion, any positive attribute of crypto? Um, and I might expand on the question and say, are there good use examples that we've seen? You'd mentioned maybe in a yeah, war-torn I mean, inflation I get this, in Yeah, I get this country. question a lot, and 
you know, what I say is, is the world's a big place. Are there some people out there that can truly benefit from cryptocurrency? Yes, of course there are. Um, you know, maybe if you live in Venezuela, for instance, um, you know, cryptocurrency is better than, um, than the, the Venezuelan currency. Uh, but I think those use cases are, are kind of overstated by their proponents, frankly. And furthermore, I mean, I don't think there's reason to justify embracing cryptocurrency, you know, from a public policy standpoint um, in the U.S. I mean, I will say, though, that it has gotten folks to, you know, it's funny, like, if you talk to people in traditional finance that have worked in payments, you know, for their whole career, it's like a very boring thing to do. And now all of a sudden, like, payments is sexy. So, you know, I think... The, you know, cryptocurrency has gotten people to think anew about, you know, very, very important um, topics like, you know, payments, like, you know, back-end settlement. Um, you know, when a securities trade, like a stock, for instance, you know, we're still at T plus two settlement in the U.S., meaning that um, the buyer doesn't receive the security and the seller doesn't receive their cash until two days after the trade date, right? And again, this is something that crypto proponents and blockchain proponents, you know, they say that we can, we can solve this. Um, and if they can, God, God bless them. So I think it's gotten people to think about, um, you know, problems that have been sort of overlooked. Uh, and so I say that's a good thing. And then if you had recommendations, so say anyone in our audience wants to either invest or wait, you say down the road, exchange value in crypto, what, yeah. what type of policy should they wait to see before they really jump in? Is there an FDIC equivalent? That yeah, they so I see? would wait to see some more. You know, what I tell my students is like, listen, treat it like you're going to the casino. Don't bring more than you're willing to lose, okay? Uh, you know, if you can afford it uh, and you have the risk tolerance, um, you know, go ahead. Uh, you know, there's no, there's, you know, it's not wrong um, to put a small part of your portfolio into to cryptocurrency. Um, but if you're really worried about the consumer protections, then, then I would wait until, you know, we see some um, oversight over cryptocurrency exchanges. You know, one of the great ironies in crypto, and there are many, is that for a technology premised on, you know, decentralization and bypassing intermediaries, the crypto ecosystem is filled with intermediaries. The exchanges being the classic case in point. And so all we've done, or all the crypto folks have done, are replace one set of intermediaries, which are essentially regulated, with unregulated uh, intermediaries. So I don't see how that's an improvement over anything. And in fact, Coinbase, which is the largest cryptocurrency exchange in the U.S., a few months ago, they came out uh, in their quarterly disclosure to the SEC and said, if we go bankrupt, um, users, so people who have bought cryptocurrency from Coinbase and store it at Coinbase, um, will become unsecured creditors in a bankruptcy. Uh, that does not apply <laughs> in your retail stock brokerage account, right? Uh, you know, we have SIPIC uh, insurance. So if your, you know, broker fails, um, you know, your portfolio is insured up to a certain point. That doesn't exist in the, uh, the crypto world. So, um, so I would wait till we had, you know, greater um, consumer protections if, you, if you're really worried about that. Yeah, and just following up on that, so Coinbase issues, oh, and we've all seen the headlines, bankruptcies, freezing withdrawals and all that. Um, at the risk of asking this question, is this time different, the volatility, and is this a permanent damage in your mind of the public's view of crypto based on the headlines we've seen, or is it just shaking out bad actors that shouldn't have been around in the first place? You know, I don't, I don't have a crystal ball, Ken. Um, you know, I think this time is different, um, just given how big crypto was at the time of the, the collapse. 
You know, and there's the old adage where it's like, you know, once the proverbial widows and orphans get hurt, then policymakers take notice. And that's what you're seeing now, right? I mean, you're seeing people who have lost their uh, entire life savings. So I do think kind of people have sort of seen past the, you know, they've seen Oz, right, so to speak, when it comes to, to cryptocurrency. But again, you know, listen, if Elon Musk sends out a tweet tomorrow saying, hey, Bitcoin's great, I think we should all buy it, it would go up. Like, that's just the reality um, of it, you know? So... Could it bounce back? Yes. I think, you know, long-term, like I said in the talk, it needs to actually do something. It needs to provide us with a meaningful, tangible benefit. It needs to improve some existing product or service. And it just haven't, it hasn't yet. And you have to ask yourself, will it? I mean, keep in mind, again, 2008, you know, 2009, uh, the first Bitcoin transaction occurred. The first, the iPhone was introduced in 2007, all right? And we all know, you know, the moment we had an iPhone in our hand, we knew how transformative it was. We're still waiting 13 years later for that killer use case for blockchain. And by technology standards, you know, it is old. 13 years is a long time. Now, what the crypto people would say is, well, you know, by money standards, gold has a 5,000-year track record. And um, I said, well, you know, I guess we won't be around to see who's right. Uh, and uh, and uh, that's what I said to, to Anthony Scaramucci on uh, CNBC one time. And... He said, he said, speak for yourself. So I guess he's working on some, <laughs> some uh, longevity research, I guess. I don't, I don't know. He probably won't share it with me. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, I mean, but it's, not, it's never going to go away, right? Um, and it's going to evolve. And I think that's what makes this so interesting and, you know, exhausting, frankly, as someone who teaches this. I mean, I'm envious of my fellow faculty members who can just reuse the same slides year after year. Uh, you know, I, I don't even bother preparing anything until a week in advance at most. Because that's how, that's how quickly things go. So, you know, like, for instance, right, um, you know, I didn't talk, you know, I had 45 minutes tonight, I had to really focus and limit it, but, you know, like, non-fungible tokens, NFTs, you know, they're one of the things, I didn't talk about NFTs in my class a year ago, now I have to talk about NFTs, you know, DeFi, classic Example. So, it, you know, it will, you know, the one thing I can guarantee is that it will evolve in ways unexpected. And who thought, you know, you know, it's crazy, right? This guy, Satoshi Nakamoto, who we don't know who he is, created this trillion dollar asset class. I mean, how wild is that? Um, so it's pretty fun. I mean, it's fun to teach. And crypto touches on so many different things. It touches on, obviously, computer science, mathematics, political science, you know, economics, the environment. I think that's why, you know, so many people are drawn to it and kind of charged by it, you know, one way or the other, because there's really something in it um, for everyone. And I see that with my students. And then back to questions from the audience. I think this one might be because it went up and then it went down. But why did crypto fail in El Salvador when it became legal tender? After well, I mean, it's, it's Bitcoin specifically. I mean, it's, you know, any asset over, you know, with a fixed supply has, is always volatile, right? I mean, that's just the nature, I mean, that's just the nature of uh, fixed supply assets. And so, um, you know, merchants just for good reason don't want to use it. Um, so there's that element of it, but then there's, you know, then there's more to it, right? So the IMF has threatened to cut off funding to El Salvador because of this Bitcoin experiment. The credit rating agencies have downgraded El Salvador's sovereign debt rating because of uh, their embrace of cryptocurrency. I mean, the government's lost a ton of money because obviously Bitcoin has gone down. Um, you know, so this is, you know, a scam really at the end of the day being perpetrated by uh, President Bukele on his, on his citizens, you know, and he, 
a few months ago, uh, or not a few, like a month or so ago, he tweeted out, buy the dip. Uh, buy the dip. It's, you know, you're the president of a country, sir. <laughs> you know, you're responsible for people. Um, and, uh, and you're just, you know, LOLing on social media. And, um, and, you know, but again, it's like, it's par for the course in, in cryptocurrency. So it's just far too, you know, at the end of the day, it's just far too volatile to be used as a medium exchange. And I don't see that ever going away. I really don't. Um, that's been a feature from the very beginning of cryptocurrency, and I don't see it going away. Of course, stable coins, you know, they do address that. Um, but crypto will always have volatility issues. And maybe if we could, uh, uh, given the interest of time, have one final question. It might be a tough one. I mean, you've mentioned certain use cases, maybe overseas, other countries, and war-torn countries, but maybe digital dollar. But if you were to come back in 10 years, what do you think might be some of the headlines that your slides might have? Oh, man. Of where we are and what's going to happen. Oh, my God. <laughs> Boy. It's um, a good way to end. <laughs> I think we will have a digital dollar in 10 years will be my, will be my um, prediction. I do think that we need to, to compete. Um, you know, technology-wise. We can't take the dollar status and our financial system status for granted. Um, but, you know, America has always competed. It's in our DNA. Um, so I'm confident that, um, you know, that will get there. Um, but outside of that, you know, who knows? I was worried that, I, you know, cryptocurrency would be zero by the time I showed up to Steamboat. So uh, <laughs> 10 years from now, who the heck knows? <laughs> So, thank you, Lee. Presentation. Thank you. Thank you Thank you for listening to Seminars at Steamboat. We'd like to thank KUNC for hosting our podcast. Support for seminars comes from the generous support of individuals and organizations in our community. For more information about our organization or to view the video recording of this or any of our previous seminars, please visit seminarsatsteamboat.org.